Welcome to the 416th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with Art Bell, author of the new memoir, Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. Stay tuned for the interview. The Reading and Writing Podcast is brought to you by Libro.fm. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 185,000 audiobooks, including bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but you'll be part of a different story one that supports your local community and your local bookstore. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. You can listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Here's your special offer from the Reading and Writing Podcast. Get two audiobooks for the price of one today with your first month of membership with the code RWPODCAST at checkout. This offer is only valid for new members in Canada and the U.S., Check out Libro.fm today. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Art Bell, author of the new memoir, Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. Art, welcome to the podcast. Jeff, thanks for having me. Great. Despite everything going on in the world right now, we're living in an era of peak comedy. Every comedian has a podcast. Every streaming service has uncounted number of stand-up comedy specials. But you were one of the pioneers of this current state of comedy. Can you set the scene for us for what the comedy scene was like before Comedy Central launched? I'm assuming it was stand-up clubs and comedy albums and obviously movies for the lucky few. But can you tell us a a little bit about what kind of the environment was for comedy before you launched Comedy Central? Sure, Jeff. Actually, you hit the nail on the head. Comedy clubs were really the primary place people went to see comedy. In addition to that, HBO in the late 80s started doing something that really intensified the interest in comedy. And that was they started putting live, or not live, I'm sorry, uncut comedy specials on TV with people like Billy Crystal, Robin Williams, Whoopi Goldberg. And these were uncut. So for the first time you could see on television, the same thing you could see in a club, uh, a comedian's entire act with no sense. Are you still there? Yeah. I, I lost you for a second. Okay. So there was no censoring of the show. And that made a huge difference in in people's perceptions of comedy. The other places you could see comedy, there were a couple of stand-up shows on TV. Interestingly, the most popular was A&E's Evening at the Improv. And that was a relatively inexpensively produced stand-up show where they had young comedians, mostly unknown comedians, against a brick wall with a mic, small audience, two cameras, and they ran that every night at 730 
The amazing thing about that, I thought, was at that time, HBO was doing the best comedy on television with their highly produced specials. But A&E was starting to get no, get to be known for comedy just because they had this series on. And one of the things I said to HBO at the time was, you don't want to be left behind as the guys who did the better comedy but weren't known for comedy. That's why you should start a comedy network. And so what was your professional background before starting Comedy Central? Were you a comedian yourself or were you a TV exec? Well, I'd been at HBO for a few years and before that CBS for a year, but I wasn't anywhere near programming or the comedy business when I started Comedy Central. I had gone to school and studied economics. And my first job out of school was as a consultant in Washington, D.C. I was an economist. I was working on econometric models for the Department of Energy. And that lasted for about three years. That said, during my schooling and during my college education, I, I spent a lot of time watching comedy, listening to comedy, really obsessing with comedy. I was a comedy nerd. I did a little bit of performing in college. I was in some plays and I did some sketch comedy, but I really wasn't a stand-up comedian or anything like that. So when I put the idea of comedy in front of Comedy Central in front of HBO, I actually put it in front of them as the comedy channel. They they knew I had no background in comedy, the comedy business. I was basically a financial analyst, a business analyst at HBO at the time. That's what I was going to ask. How did you land at HBO and what were you doing before the launch? When I got to HBO, it's an interesting story. A friend of mine called me while I was working at CBS and he said, HBO is looking for someone who knows how to do forecasting models of the kind you used to do in Washington. And I told them about you and they said, tell them to come over. So I went over, interviewed, got the job because I did know how to do forecasting models. That said, it was the last thing I wanted to do at HBO (laughs) or anywhere else. I'd left consulting to get into the entertainment business, but I realized that I could leverage that into a job at HBO, and that would be a good thing because at least I was closer to what I wanted to do. So what were you forecasting for them? Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, I was forecasting subscribership. Got it. HBO had been on the satellite, I think, since 1976, and they grew very quickly. And they were making a whole lot of money. Subscribers were pouring in. And so they expected that by the end of the decade, they would have 100 100 million households, which is all of them, practically, (laughs) would have HBO. And they expected to continue this sort of exponential growth. The problem is around the time I came in, 1983-84, they hit what they called the subscriber wall. Sure. And what happened is all all the subscribers' growth that they'd seen stopped, and they couldn't figure out why. And so they wanted someone to put together a model to tell them not only what happened, but what was likely to happen and how they could fix it. And that's what I did. I know we're going to talk about Comedy Central, but can you tell us a little bit or are you at liberty to say, like, what was the problem there or were you able to diagnose it? Yeah, it was a long time ago. And so yeah, I don't yeah. think I'm going to hurt anybody's feelings. I think the problem was there was a lot of hubris at HBO and they thought this will never end. And truthfully, 
it was the best television on television. People were walking up and down the hall saying, we are at HBO, we are going to change television. And that's exactly what they did. But they really didn't understand what was happening in the marketplace. They didn't have a whole lot of data about what was happening in the marketplace. And what was actually happening in the marketplace was that a cable operator would launch, a local cable operator, and say they had 100,000 subs. So they'd launch those 100,000 subs and maybe... At the first month, 60% would take HBO because it was a deal and everything else. But by the fifth or sixth month, it may have been down to more like 20 or 30%, which is where it hung out. Now, if you keep launching new cables, new cable systems, then you're going to keep seeing that growth. But if you don't keep up the same level of launch, then the growth is going to slow down. And that's right. what happened. That's what they didn't realize. They, they thought that their average penetration in a new system was going to stay at 60%, but it didn't. <laughs> Churn. Churn is right. Exactly. So you were at HBO, you were doing the subscriber forecasts and, and modeling. Can you walk us through what inspired you? And you talked about the fact that HBO was doing these comedy specials, but can you walk us through the initial idea and, and basically how you took it from an idea to, to doing a presentation to, I'm assuming, the, the top HBO execs about Comedy Central? Sure. I said I was a comedy nerd. That actually went back to my childhood when I listened to all the comedy albums. I was eight years old watching comedians on the Ed Sullivan show. I couldn't watch Late Night. I couldn't watch Johnny Carson. But I loved comedy. So by the time I got into the entertainment business, I had been thinking about how to get into comedy. And I looked around. I saw there was an all music channel. I saw there was an all sports channel, ESPN. And these were the kind of cable channels that were coming up. I could not figure out why there was not an all comedy channel. I love comedy and I'm sure other people love comedy and I thought it would be a great idea. So I came up with this while I was in grad school watching the development of the cable business from afar. When I got to HBO, I started talking to people pretty early about well, there really should be a comedy channel and I don't see why you guys don't do it. But I was almost instantly rebuffed by anybody I talked to. They said, ah, HBO is not going to start new channels or they're not in the basic cable business or they're not really interested in doing that or why should they? And that was just in casual conversations. So a, a few years went by and I finally decided, look, nobody started a comedy channel yet. If HBO doesn't do it, somebody else is going to. I'm going to go to the head of programming. Her name was Bridget Potter. And I'm going to tell her about my idea and see what she says. So I went to, I got a meeting with Bridget. And she didn't know me, but she was nice enough to have a meeting with me. And I started to tell her my idea for an all comedy network. And she said, Arthur, no one wants a 24-hour cable comedy network. Nobody wants to watch comedy that much. Nobody needs any more comedy. There's plenty of comedy on the dial. <laughs> what kind of a idea is that? And by the way, no comedian worth worth anything would be on a comedy channel. And I said, okay, I, I get it. And she also told me that I didn't know that much about television and sent me packing. But by the time I got to the elevator, I, I realized that I thought she was wrong. I thought she was wrong. And so I kept thinking about the idea. I didn't pitch it to anybody else, but I decided that if HBO wasn't going to do it, maybe I should go somewhere else. I'll get a job in another place, buy a comms, some other entertainment company, maybe use that as my calling card to get the job. 
and uh, see what they had to say. So I started writing it up. One day, my boss's boss was just passing by my office and he said, hey, what are you doing? I think it was uh, later in the afternoon. And he said, and I said, I'm just working on this idea I had. And he said, let me see. Took a look at it and he said, you know what? Michael Fuchs, the chairman of HBO, really ought to see this. Let's go. And I said, what do you mean, right now? And he said, yeah, let's just go see Michael right now. I want you to tell him about this idea. So we walked over to Michael's office. Now, I was a very junior person there. There's no way I was walking into Michael's office. But I was taken into Michael's office. I had no materials with me, no presentation, hadn't thought about how to present it. But I sat down and I pitched it to Michael as, as, as best I could. And I think what really helped me was that I'd been thinking about it for so long that I not only had a vision for what the channel could be, but I had an idea of how to do it cost effectively, which I explained to him. And that I think that was a big selling point. Plus, I was very passionate about it. I think he got that from my impromptu presentation because I was excited about it. And so did you get the green light right there or did it take a, a few weeks or, or days? It's an amber light. Michael rightly said, hey, it sounds like a pretty good idea. Why don't we do some research on it, make a tape, presentation tape, and come back in a month or so. And the executives here will take a look at it and I'll take a look at it and we'll decide whether we should go forward. So I was teamed up with a couple of people, somebody from the comedy department named Stu Smiley, which is a great name if you're in comedy. <laughs> and uh, and Fran Shea, who went on to become, by the way, the head of e-television. So these were very kind of capable people. I didn't know very much about production or comedy, but thankfully I was teamed up with them. We put together a tape. I did most of the research, a lot of the financial work. I teamed up with whoever I had to with the company. And we put together a presentation, presented the idea to Michael and the top executives. There were probably 20 people in the room. And at that point, Michael did give me the green light. He said, sounds great. Let's do it. And I'm just curious, knowing what I know about the media business, did that present any problems in your relationship with the earlier exec that you had mentioned the idea and immediately shot it down? It's funny you mention that. I talk about it a little bit <laughs> in the book. I mean, what Stu said almost instantly upon meeting me was, what do you know about comedy? And he was right. I didn't. I knew what I liked, but I was not in the comedy business. Stu, know all, Stu knew all the comedians. He knew all their agents. He'd been in the business for got to be 10 years. And there I was knowing nothing about it. Suddenly I'm telling him what I think we ought to be doing. He also constantly said, hey, there he is, the guy with the big idea. Because as time <laughs> went forward, it was evident that this was going to be a lot more difficult than I imagined and a lot more difficult than anybody imagined. And looking back on it, why shouldn't it have been? It was a big undertaking with a lot of people and so so what is the what were the difficulties you said it's really difficult so can you walk us through once you got the green light the the process started to launch the channel what were the difficulties that you began to realize well my idea for launching the channel involved as and I said it was cost effective involved playing not only movies and stand up comedy but playing short form comedy and the short form comedy would come from clips from comedy movies and comedy television. Everybody has their favorite right. scene from a movie. And we certainly see that on YouTube these days, but nobody had done that before. There had been a couple of clip shows. So I said, we can get these clips. And everybody said, you can't get the clips. They're very expensive. And I said, well, here's what we're going to do. And they were right. They were very expensive. You put a clip show together, it cost you a billion dollars in clip. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
But I said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to the, the movie companies and television companies. We're going to ask for this stuff, and we're going to tell them that it's promotional. We'll put the name of the movie and where it can be seen and everything else. So we get all this stuff on a promotional basis, even old movies. And they said, well, how are you going to get old movies? I said, well, videotapes. Everybody's renting videotapes. There's a billion old videotapes in there. Nobody's renting those. We'll be promoting great scenes from the old movies. And so that got a lot of enthusiasm <laughs> among the movie companies. And they said, yeah, great, we'll do that. TV companies said the same thing. The production companies all said, yeah, great, we'll do that. But you have to get clear wow, with no rights. That's, That's the thing. The they said, if you can get clearance from the unions, we will do this. So we went to the unions where the Directors Guild, the Writers Guild, the Music Guild, and they were very protective of the situation. But there was a clause in uh, th that allowed you to do promotion without checking with the Actors Guild. And the clause was if you did basically under three minutes from the movie or the television show uncut, unedited, then you were in the clear. But you still, we still had to get permission from all the other guilds. So we did that because it would have been a nightmare to call up everybody in the clip and say, can we use right, this? Right. So we got permission. We started putting that together. I was in charge of clips. We assembled a team of what we called the cliptomaniacs. They just reviewed movies and television shows and stand-up shows and pulled funny moments out of them. And we amassed over several months a huge pile of great clips. We also had short-form comedy. We also had movies. We had some long-form on there, too. And we also had Mystery Science Theater 3000, which came through the door. I'll tell you about that in a minute. But yeah. about seven or eight weeks before we launched, we got a call from the Directors Guild. And the Directors Guild said, we had a board meeting and we changed our mind. We are not giving you permission to use the clips. Now, you can imagine my intense disappointment <laughs> yeah, yeah. at that moment. The whole thing looked like it just came crashing down. And it, was, it, had built, it had been imagined and built up by me so methodically over the past year or whatever it was that to have our plans ruined that close to launch was devastating. So we came up with Plan B pretty quickly, which involved just relying on clips that were of movies that were playing on HBO that month. And you can imagine that was, it was a bookkeeping nightmare. For one thing, you had to figure out what was on, what was coming. You had to clip from those movies. And also, it cut our inventory by 95%. Ugh. So instead of having a zillion clips, we had 5% of a zillion clips. And that was just not enough. It really wasn't enough to launch the channel. And I'm just telling you one of the larger problems. There were lots of other problems. We had to get, we had to build some sets for some hosts because we had hosted clip shows, one of which was Short Attention Span Theater, hosted by a, a then unknown comic named John Stewart. Anyway, we had to, that had to be all put together and we had a very limited amount of time to do this. So that ended up having us launch with a very anemic schedule. And the critics were not very impressed. Matter of fact, I don't think anybody was very impressed because it just wasn't enough programming. But being the optimist that I had to become, I said, look, we'll get more programming. We'll figure out what to do. As I said, Mystery Science Theater 3000 was there. That became a cult hit for us pretty quickly. And, and tell us about that. How did that come in the door? Before we launched, we had a team of writers. And, and the head writer, whose name was Eddie Gordetsky, said what we really need is a, an original show we can make 
which is a watch us watch television show. He said, I want every, all of the comedians, we always sit in front of the TV, all the writers, we sit in front of the TV or sit in front of the movie and we make fun of it right through the whole movie. And he said, we need a show like that. And so they started to plan it and we started to put the production together. But almost immediately, somebody walked in the door holding a videotape and they said, you will not believe what this is. And they put the tape in and it was Joel Hodgson and his two puppets, Tom Servo and Crow, sitting in front of some bad movies and making fun of them. It was exactly the show we pictured. So we flew out to Minneapolis. They were doing this at a small independent station, television station in Minneapolis. And we signed them up. Now, I, I will point out that was the marker, one of the markers of success in my mind early on for Comedy Central. Not just that it was a good show and it became a cult hit, but I expected the channel, my vision of the channel included the fact that it would attract innovative comedy that would not likely appear anywhere else. And you think about Mystery Science Theater 3000 in those days, NBC was not likely to put that on in prime time or anywhere. We gave programming like that a home, and that's something that Comedy Central ended up being known for and being um, proud of. So that's how Mystery Science Theater 3000 got on the air, and it saved us in the early days, as I said, because the critics liked it. We also noticed that despite the fact that we were running on fewer clips, we were starting to get an audience among younger among young people. And so when you launched, was it 24 hours? Um, it was it was it was twenty four hours, twenty four hours a day, seven days a week, and I, of course we were playing things over and over. But at the time, most cable channels started anemically, meaning they didn't have a whole lot of programming or good programming, and they played a lot of repeats because people, as as a channel rolled out, it started out with very few subscribers, very few cable systems, and then if it got a new cable system, everything that was being seen in that cable system was new to those viewers; they hadn't seen it before. So we and every other cable channel got away with doing a lot of repeats in the early days. Right. Again, we had fewer, less programming than we needed. But if you take a look at ESPN in the old days, two in the morning, they were playing repeats and they were also playing high school hockey games sure, sure. because they did not have high-end sports shows at that point. So that, that was really our approach to the whole thing. So you mentioned Mystery Science Theater. What were some of the other first slate of shows when you launched? As I said, we had we had access to a lot of stand-up through HBO. And so we we mined that for clips and also played some of the longer form HBO comedy specials. We were lucky to do that. And we also got a chance to play some of the movies that were licensed by HBO. So really at that point it it was that. We did license some older classic called classic comedy the ernie kovacs show which was run in the 50s and was one of the first and best television comedy sketch shows ever done and that was one of our that was one of our early hopes that we could showcase comedy that hadn't been seen in a long time but on top of that we were doing some original stand-up shows early on and our hope was to do some talk talk show and that's that's when we said we found bill maher to do a talk show. And he did Politically Incorrect. So those were the early things that we were doing that were keeping us going. And can you tell us a little bit about Politically Incorrect and how that kind of got off the ground? Yeah. Bill Maher asked to see us. My partner, Mitch Semmel, who was in programming at that time with me, and I met 
with Bill at a diner in Los Angeles. And he said, I want to do a talk show where people actually talk. Because the problem with talk shows is nobody talks. They're just talking about their book or their movie or whatever, just whatever they're hyping. It's not very interesting. I want to do a talk show where people talk about the issues, real things. And I'm not just going to have comics on and I'm not just going to have you know, entertainment people on. I'm going to have real people on. And I want to, I want to get serious. I want to go up to the line. I want to cross the line. The show is going to be politically incorrect and I want to call it politically incorrect. So we basically said yes to the show on the spot before we got the check, which apparently didn't surprise Bill because he was pretty much the way he is now, sure of himself. But we had never done that, signed up a show on scene. But it went on as you want to become uh, sure. very famous. And it's still on the air and basically the same form that it was always in. And on HBO. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I went to ABC and then right, I went to right. HBO. Yeah. And Bill exactly. did get in a lot of trouble along the way, which was yeah, one, of his, <laughs> one of his aims, I think. Yeah. Now someone should play all of those old clips somewhere. Does Comedy <laughs> Central do that? All of, all of those old politically incorrects? Those would be great. They don't. I'm not sure Bill would be too happy to see that on the oh, air. Sure he would probably be start <laughs> complaining. But uh, I think Comedy Central is at the point where they're you know, well-funded enough and well-established enough that they, they want to do as much original programming as they can. Oh, I know. They I know. I'm just saying. For But I'm just curious. Can you remember the actual launch day? Any memories stand out from that day? Yeah. We launched as Comedy Channel, the Comedy Channel at HBO. And as I said, we didn't have enough programming. We had a launch party. And I remember there was a countdown to the launch party and the countdown was done by a series of comedians saying 10 and then another comedian would say nine, another comedian would say eight, we taped it in advance. And then Stu Smiley, who was the head of original programming for the comedy channel at that point, he pushed a big giant red button on his desk and that's what launched the channel. And I remember Michael Fuchs turning to me and saying, Bart, this channel's on the air now, and it's going to be on the air for the rest of our lives. It's never going to stop, and we're going to have to keep putting comedy in because it's running day and night forever. And, <laughs> I, and that just, I almost fainted when he said that yeah, because yeah. you really didn't consider it, but there he was uh, pointing it out. Yeah, he's right. And he was right. Yeah. Well, you said that the early reviews weren't great. When did it turn around? <laughs> I can't give you an exact date. I, it, it turned around for us audience-wise before it, before the critics caught on. We were, of course, pitching advertisers and cable operators. We wanted cable operators to launch Comedy Channel. And we'd hear from them, as, yeah, it's not very good. We've seen it. We don't like it. But my kid watches it all the time. And we heard that also from advertisers, like, hey, I don't get it. But my teenage son's like, he's glued to the thing. So we started to realize that we were developing an audience. And I think it was not only our programming, but just our attitude. Here we were, an upstart saying, look, we're going to do comedy all the time for the rest of our lives. And I think, I think the 18 to 24 crowd was attracted to that. They thought that was really cool and they wanted to be part of that. So our, we had an early review, which I think called us the gong show of cable channels, <laughs> which was not what we wanted to hear. And even six or eight months into the, into the channel, we were not getting a lot of great reviews. It wasn't until we became Comedy Central that we started to, we started to get noticed by the reviewers. 
And when did that happen? Did I miss that? In 1992, this is a couple of years after we launched, we did something called the Presidential State of the Union Undressed. That was an idea we had. It was another kind of watch us watch idea where we were going to cover the Presidential State of the Union Address, which is given every year, live, and at the same time have comedians sitting in front of it commenting on the broadcast. The first comedian we got to do it was Al Franken. And it turned out to be really good. And I remember that the Los Angeles Times said something along the lines of, we have seen the future of television and it's Comedy Central. And it wasn't exactly that, but it was that kind of thing. These guys have really done something that we haven't seen before, and they seem to have a lot of potential. Now, you can also note that was the start of our news coverage, basically. We went on to cover the Democratic and Republican conventions that year. John Stewart was part of that. And we started to get noticed by younger people who wouldn't otherwise watch news or news events. So that uh, you could draw a straight line between that and The Daily Show in, in 95. Sure. When did you end up leaving Comedy Central? I left in 96. What happened is my boss, who had been brought in early on, was fired and they put in someone, the board was run by MTV Networks and HBO at that point. It was a joint venture. And the MTV Networks people said, we've got a guy we want to run this channel. And they put him in and he basically took all of us out of our positions and put us somewhere else and then ultimately let us go, all the HBO guys. So I left. And where did your career take you after the launch of Comedy Central? I ended up at uh, Court TV, which is, it sounds like a crazy place to transition to from comedy. I spent a couple of years in between, honestly, about working at as a consultant at A&E, Children's Television Network, PBS. And those were an important two years for me because I got to see a lot of different television channels, a lot of different ways television was managed and programmed. So then I was recruited to Court TV. Court TV at that time was a failing channel. They had about, they had very few subscribers, not many advertisers. And the owners at the time, it was Time Warner, Liberty Media, and NBC Cablevision. They were going to close it down and try and sell whatever scraps they could. But then they decided, all right, we're going to give it one more chance. We'll hire a new executive team and see what can, what happens. So they hired me and they hired my boss, Henry Schleif, who had also been at HBO. I knew him from HBO. And we took a look at the channel and decided what it needed was more than just courtroom coverage, because that's all it was at that point. Right. It was 24 hours a day of cameras in the courtroom. And that played okay during the daytime, but it didn't play very well in prime time. And Prime time is when you make your money. They needed an audience. So we changed the focus of the channel. I, I actually suggested this. We changed the focus to crime and justice and started putting crime shows on, forensic shows, investigative documentaries, that kind of thing on in prime time. And that started working great. I will say that the whole idea of going to crime and justice was not really welcomed by our advertising sales guy or the board because they were worried that advertisers were going to run from this. You say crime to them and they run away. And I said crime is one of the most popular genres on the networks. 
and it does very well. Why shouldn't it do well for us? So maybe some advertisers won't like it at the beginning, but I bet we can pull this off. And we did pull it off. That's great. What inspired you to write this memoir about the uh, creation and launch of Comedy Central? I actually, when I stopped working and started writing, I actually intended to write a memoir about my childhood growing up as an amateur musician. My mother was a piano teacher. I got to see a lot of real musicians. But of course, I I, I had to play piano. And I continued to play piano. I still play piano. I started with classical. I ended up taking jazz. So I was like an amateur musician all of my life. And I found it very frustrating being an amateur after a while because (laughs) especially compared to all the people who were brilliant, who had started as prodigies. And I, I compared myself to, I said, this isn't really as satisfying as I would have hoped. But listen, I wasn't going to be a professional musician. So I started to write a, a, a memoir about being an amateur musician. And I remember being at a party once and saying to a friend of mine, yeah, I'm writing a memoir. And he said, what it's about, what's it about? And I said, the frustrations of being an amateur musician. He said, yeah, that's only been written about 500,000 times. I said, <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. But that didn't stop me. That's not how I got to write the comedy memoir. What, what changed it was I was I had a writer's group and I was reading my stuff to the writers group and they were supportive and they were giving me helpful hands. And then one day I just said, you know what, I'm going to try writing a, a story about something that happened at Comedy Central. And so I did. And I took that to the writers group and they all sort of sat up and said, wow, that's interesting. We didn't know you did that. And I said, yeah. And they said, well, why don't you write more stuff about Comedy Central? So I said, oh, okay. I said, I'm disappointed you didn't like the last 100,000 words I wrote about my childhood. And they said, (laughs) it's not that we didn't like it, but this could be really interesting. So I said, okay. So I started writing stories about Comedy Central and comedy, how I started Comedy Channel at HBO, and it became Comedy Central. And I realized after a while that I had the makings of a book, so I just kept going. And that's how that happened. Do you uh, watch any comics now? Gary Goldman, I think, is terrific. My kids drag me, not drag me, my kids point out all of the uh, all of the new comics that they like. But Gary Goldman is the one who stands out for me. I just think Got he's it. great. It's interesting, given our whole conversation and, and the whole cable business in the 80s and 90s and the, the alts. I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about specifically YouTube and how that's really, I think, changed viewing, especially for younger generation. I have a 13-year-old and a 16-year-old. They never watch TV, but they watch a ton of uh, video and it's all YouTube. And I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about that and how that's impacted. Yeah, a couple of thoughts. One is it validated my original idea that short form programming was an interesting way to go. And at, at the time when we were doing a lot of short form programming, it was a lot of kids who were watching. And that was pointed out to me recently, I guess a couple of years ago, saying YouTube's basically doing what we started to do it at comedy. The other thing is I noticed around 19, I'm sorry, 2006 or 2007, I, I started saying, you know what? In the old days, you had to have a lot of money and a lot of wherewithal to put a a television channel together. I said, pretty soon you're going to be able to put one out of your garage. 
because there's the internet, there's access to all this stuff and YouTube and, and people are just mining music and movies and not paying royalties. And I said, this is really going to change the face of television. And that's exactly what happened. I think that YouTube has been a little bit of the bane of the existence of the, certainly the people producing television and movies on one hand, although on the other hand, it is promotional for some of that stuff. Sure. But the idea that linear channels, meaning the channels that grew up in the 80s and 90s, are going to go away, I don't think that's true. you got to remember that those are curated channels. We told people, oh, Comedy Central not. still tells people, look, this is the kind of comedy we do. If you want that kind of comedy, watch us. Not only will we do, will we do that, we'll have a show afterwards you'll probably like, and we'll tell you what we're going to do next week that you'll probably like. And that's a very important thing, and I think people are still going to watch television that way. But it, it, it certainly has drawn off a lot of the younger audience who would otherwise be watching linear channels. Where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your memoir? That's a good question. I have a website. It's artbellwriter.com. And it's got stuff about me and the memoir and also some of the other writing I've done, including some of the early stuff about my childhood. But I've just posted stuff I like to post on my blog there. So that's a good place to go. Great. Again, we've been speaking with Art Bell, author of the new memoir, Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. And the I also, available. Oh, what's that? I was also going to say the book is now available. It launched yes. last week. Uh, so I was going to say the book is available now. So go grab a copy. Great. And Thank Art, you. thanks for doing this interview. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.